Welcome to Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture, a podcast from Talbot School of Theology at Biola University. I'm your host, Scott Ray, Dean of Faculty and Professor of Christian Ethics. And I'm your co-host, Sean McDowell, Professor of Apologetics. We're here with our special guest, Dr. Michael Bird, from, uh, as I would say, the deep, deep south, or the way, (laughs) way down under, uh, coming to us from Australia today. Uh, Michael is the academic dean and lecturer in theology at Ridley College in Melbourne, Australia, uh, and he has come out with a fascinating new book that we want that we want our listeners to be aware of. It's called Seven Things I Wish Christians Knew About the Bible." It's a terrific introduction, uh, to not only for for people who are not super familiar with the Bible, but also it digs deeply into some really significant areas. Um, that have, that have, I think, it, the possibility of much more advanced study uh, for people who want to go there. So, Mike, happy happy to have you with us. Welcome, and great to have you on with us. It's great to be with you, Scott and Sean. Tell Mike, what have you seen in churches and among students that moved you to write this book? Because you've you've written on a ton of subjects in biblical studies and theology. Why this, and why now? Uh, several reasons. I found you get some recurring misconceptions, you get some recurring anxieties, and you get some repeated, how can I put it, um, like conspiracy theories about the Bible. And these things keep coming up, you know, year after year. And so I wanted to write something that addressed frequent questions, frequent misunderstandings, and the frequent weird accusations that people make about the Bible. Now, I suspect there are a lot more than seven of those things that you've come up with. Uh, how did you decide on the seven that you did? Yeah, I, I picked the seven based on the ones that I thought were the most common misconceptions or the most common questions about the Bible. Uh, I also picked them on the basis for finding the the topics that I think uh, will help Christians get the most out of their Bible, you know, to have a, a better Bible reading experience, a better Bible study experience, uh, avoid making sort of category mistakes in how they handle and use the Bible, and also will help them to be more equipped to talk about reading the Bible with their non-Christian friends in, in a way that will be persuasive and convincing. So they'll be able to talk with more confidence and more, more knowledge about some of the questions or objections people have about the Bible. Now, Michael, this first question that we're going to tackle is one I get a lot from students because there's concern like, who put the Bible together? How do we know we got the right books? So how did the Old Testament and New Testament come to be in their present form? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question, and that's a common one I get as well. And here you've got almost like two extremes. People just to sort of assume that the Bible floated down from heaven, right. bound in leather, <laughs> complete with Schofield footnotes and the words of Jesus in red, written red in old Elizabethan English. <laughs> okay, so, you know, uh, whether it's your NIV or your King James, this is kind of, you know, it just sort of magically appeared, delivered by angels down at your Lifeway bookstore. <laughs> Uh, then you get this sort of other extreme who people who says the Bible was invented as a conspiracy by the Emperor Constantine, who cooperated with a sherry of malevolent bishops who wanted to impose their <laughs> narrow and diabolical vision of faith on a generally inclusive, pluralistic and tolerant church. And that's how they created Christendom. 
So you, you get those kind of like two weird extremes out there. Now, they're both completely and utterly wrong. That's what I have to tell you. Now, uh, I'm not an expert in the, uh, the, the Jewish canon or the, the Hebrew Bible, but generally coming up to about 70 AD, okay, you seem to get a, a developing consensus certainly about the Torah, the first five books of, the, of Moses, then about the prophets, you know, the major and, and the minor prophets. Uh, around the edges of that, it's a little bit, um, it's a little bit uh, unclear. But you know, you get people including obviously the wisdom books like the Psalms and Proverbs, uh, Daniel. So some people may have had some questions about uh, Esther and the Song of Songs. But certainly, as you get into the second century, then. For Jewish communities, the Hebrew Bible um, pretty much includes the books we would put in our Old Testament today, although they do order, order it slightly differently. And you can see some of that through the sort of writings that Jewish authors cite, like Josephus, and the lists of books mentioned by the rabbis in the, in the second and third centuries. Concerning the New Testament, it seems very clear that the early church, and so I'm thinking here like the second and third centuries, they clearly valued anything about Jesus and the testimony of the apostles. Okay, that was, the, that was their primary sort of go-to. So very quickly, the four Gospels seem to have been widely circulated, widely used, and widely venerated. Paul's letters, usually including Hebrews, because some people thought, oh, sounds Paul enough. I guess we'll throw that in there with Paul. And then 1 Peter and 1 John is definitely included as well. So by the end of the second century... Basically, the four Gospels, Paul, uh, 1 John, 1 Peter, probably Acts as well, are considered um, canon I won't say canonical, but authoritative for Christian faith. And then you've also got a few other writings like James and, and Jude, which, you know, uh, which people are you know, more likely than not should be included. But the church had to think about which books it believed because Christians were writing other books. The people were writing stuff like the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Judas. And people had to think, well, what do we think about these books? Do they line up with these other books that we know? Do they come from the apostles? Do they line up with the faith? A majority of those sorts of books, people said, well, it's a little bit interesting, but no, I don't think we should read that in our worship service. And then there were these other books that people thought, now these sound pretty good, but maybe they don't make the quite cut in being on our official register of books. And that would be books like The Shepherd of Her Mass, The Apocalypse of Peter, which many Christians liked and enjoyed, but they didn't give them canonical status. And various um, councils, both local and regional, you know, often gave lists of, of books they think people should be reading. And you get Athanasius's famous um, 39th Festal Letter, written in the 4th century. And so by a slow process of what I would call developing consensus, you end up with our 27 books of the New Testament canon. So, so it wasn't like somebody actually sat down and decided, but, the, but a developing consensus over time that these are the books that ought to be included, something like yeah, exactly. that? Exactly. Yeah, you see that core consensus developing, I think, by the end of the second century, where you've got like the four Gospels, Paul's letters, plus Hebrews, 1 John, 1 Peter, probably Acts as well. They seem to be the core. And then it's around the edges. People are thinking, okay, well, what about James? What about Second Peter? What about the Shepherd of Hermas? What about the Apocalypse of Peter? Uh some of those writings did make their way into the canon, the official register of Christian books. But others, people said, okay, I like it, but I'm not going to, it's probably not going to be, you know, canonical as we would call it.
One other thing related to this, you, you've got a fascinating account of how the Bible got into English. Uh, can you re- recount that briefly for our listeners? Yeah, I mean, the the English church, because it's part of the Latin West, is mostly using the Vulgate of Jerome. You do get a little bit, uh, a few snippets of, of uh, the Bible in, in sort of, you know, Middle English, as it were, going around. And then you've got uh, the Lollards associated with John Wycliffe, who are trying to put the Bible into English, but they're, of course, persecuted by the establishment. But then it's with the advent of the uh, English Reformation, where you get people like William Tyndall and and uh, Miles Coverdale, that the Bible really comes into English. Then it gets sponsored by the Crown and by the official church, and they begin making their own trans official translations of the Bible, which then climaxes, of course, in the famous um, King James Bible of 1611. You maintain that the Bible is divinely given and yet humanly composed. What do you mean by that? Or better yet, what do you not mean by that? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's talking about the idea of inspiration, you know, how does how does God give his word through human authors? And Christians have normally used this language of God inspiring authors. Now, that, that word inspiration is a good word, but, you know, it, it, it can be taken in different directions. Like, do we think it like, you know, Matthew was sitting by a lovely stream somewhere in Galilee, <laughs> enjoying the peace and the serenity, he says, I feel... I feel really inspired, like Jesus wants us to love our enemies. So I'm going to write down, Jesus said, love your enemies, because I'm inspired by this lovely stream. Or I saw a butterfly and it reminded me of Jesus. Um, There's that kind of, you know, uh, inspiration. Uh, Then some people have a view of inspiration where basically Matthew went into his study with a pen and quill, kind of um, the eyes rolled back in the back of his head. He went into some ecstatic trance. He began unconsciously writing his gospel, and then he suddenly woke up and had the gospel of Matthew right in front of him. Um, so you, you've got these, again, you can have these somewhat peculiar extreme views about what biblical inspiration means. What inspiration means is God's spirit moves or fills an author to write an account using their own knowledge, their own personality, their own vocabulary to come up with a narrative or a story or a text that represents God's purpose, God's message to humans, but as conveyed through this particular human author. You describe the Bible as being normative, but not negotiable. What's the distinction you're getting at there? Yeah, for me, I think this is the big issue today. The number one issue today is the Bible in any sense normative? Should it be an authority for the way you live your life? Now, I'll, I'll never forget reading some tweets from a particular seminary in New York City where this, um, this representative of the seminary was basically saying, you know, thanks to the advent of critical theory, and, and there's a whole bunch of you know, different views of, of critical theory. Thanks to the advent of critical theory, we know that some parts of the Bible come from God and some parts come from men. Hmm. And we need to follow the bits of the Bible that are from God and not the bits that are from men. So thanks to critical theory, we can remove the progressive organs from the Bible and we can salvage the Bible that way. Now, that is based on the idea that 
the only bits of the Bible that are authoritative are the bits that agree with your politics, your view of culture, you know, your own view of being a human being. And it means you can pretty much pick and choose which parts of the Bible are from God and which parts you want to dump in that trash basket called um, heteronormative patriarchal white men. Okay. So, you know, but that is where I think a lot of the conversation is, you know, can we use the Bible authoritatively when it's got some really weird stuff in it? Like, you know, like going into Canaan and, and dominating the environment there militarily, you know, using warfare, you know, it, it doesn't represent the, um, the highest virtues of fourth wave feminism when you're reading the Old Testament or the New <laughs> Testament. So what's the good of it then? If this is not fourth wave feminism, obviously it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a malicious text or something along those lines. And because it doesn't reflect the values of our day, the, the idea then is that it's not something that should be prescriptive for us. Mike, let me pursue that a little bit further if I might. Uh, you make the claim in the book that the Bible is authoritative but not all of it is authoritative for us today. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, exactly. There are, you know, the way we use the Bible, I mean, I, I believe in the entire counsel of God, um, but you know, there are certain parts of the Bible that have been superseded by a new element of redemptive history. So, I mean, let's take example, uh, the law. Um, you know, there is a lot in the law that is relevant for Christians today, and it's directly applied to followers of Jesus by Jesus himself and by the apostles. That's the best example I can give you is Leviticus nineteen eighteen, which is the love command. You know, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. That is the law, and that is relevant for us today. So, not just the Ten Commandments, a whole bunch of other things. And Paul can use the Torah, the law as part of his ethical reasoning in 1 Corinthians. However, we are not under the constitution of the law uh, as it was, say, for ancient Israel. So we, we don't live and order our lives uh, according to the total, totality of the Torah. I mean, once upon a time, Protestants thought that, you know, the Old Testament gave you the moral law for personal ethics, and then it told you how to run a kind of theocratic Protestant kingdom. So if you're living in somewhere like Geneva or Scotland, it was a kind of, the Old Testament was a manifesto for how a king should govern um, a Christian nation. Um, I don't think that's a good idea. I think we've got to recognize that we live, you know, in in a different world, culturally, historically, and Jesus and the apostles affirm a lot of the Old Testament, but it doesn't always carry over into the New Testament. The basis of Christian ethics is the teaching of Jesus, the example of Jesus, and life in the Spirit. And the law then functions more as a consultant than an absolute norm for Christians. I mean, this is getting to a big debate about law and gospel and continuity sure. and discontinuity, right. uh, that type of a thing. But, you know, we've, we've got to recognize that, you know, some of the laws like, you know, um, how you treat prisoners of war, uh, say today, I would not be basing that essentially on the Old Testament uh, because that was about, you know, ancient Near Eastern warfare, intertribal warfare in the ancient Near East, which is probably not going to apply directly or all that well to sort of, you know, the, the modern day, um, God forbid, the modern day battlefield where we fight everywhere from cyberspace to under the ocean to, to all sorts of things like that, which means 
the application of of things from the Old Testament to the New Testament into the present always requires a lot of discernment and trying to figure out how we take things from back then and if and how we comply it in the present time. Are there any kind of simple principles that you would use if something from the Old Testament applies? Like obviously if it's mentioned in the New Testament and repeated, it applies uh, arguably something that's rooted in creation like marriage, uh, which also is repeated in, you know, Jesus says, have you not read in uh, Matthew 19? Are there any other kind of simpler principles that people could apply to the Old Testament to just know if it's still applicable today directly in practice? Yeah, I'm, I wish there was a simple kind of like mm. – um, like uh, like you had an app and you just ran it over biblical <laughs> text and if it and if it went green it means apply it today if it was red it means it's not applicable today you know I wish it was that simple I wish it was that simple uh, but it's not I mean I mean well, let me let me think let me think of a let me think of a good example um, okay off the off the top of my head like I mean let's let's take some like some of the food laws in the Old Testament okay. Now, the, the purpose of the food laws was largely operating with what they knew of, uh, of ancient standards of food hygiene, uh, but also it was a way of marking out Israel to be distinct from the other nations. Okay, so this, has got, this is what's going to make you stand out, that type of thing. Uh, but we know in the New Testament that those, those food laws uh, are certainly no longer relevant for a, a for Gentiles, you know, for for non-Jewish followers of Christ. While Jewish followers of Jesus can still feel free to obey the um, the food laws, they're no longer prescriptive because our distinctiveness from the world is no longer rooted in that ancient Near Eastern context, but it's largely now based on uh, the way we follow Christ in our own our own cities, our own towns, our own villages around the world. So there's no hard and fast um, rule you can give. You simply need to discern, you know, how relevant, how applicable is a given text. And that could be like about divorce. It could be about warfare. You know, it could be about sacrifices in the temple. You just have to discern within the precincts of your own conscience, use your own wisdom and think about what is uh, what is transferable today? Now that can be that can be quite hard because a lot a lot of the stuff in the Old Testament, you know, will appear particularly weird. And I have to say, there is nothing more terrifying than asking even seminary students what is the purpose of the Old Testament food laws. Like you know, not able to eat shellfish or pork, and and my students often give answers like. Well, you know, the food laws are pretty weird, but, you know, I guess God can just do whatever the heck he likes because he's God, um, which, which is a, a very, I find a very unsatisfactory answer. You know, I, I try to get students thinking along the lines that, you know, the purpose of, of, of the law was to kind of, you know, effectively create a sort of lifeboat, which God's people could survive in as they were in the tumultuous world of the Bronze Age, you know, when with all the sort of, you know, the various empires and the intertribal violence and all the intrigues between kings and families and the sort of, you know, agrarian society they were living, it, it was a way of, you know, keeping them alive, keeping them holy, okay, and able to be human beings, um, acting kind of like Adam, what Adam was to Eden, Israel was to be to Canaan, 
and, and, and being God's people in that context. It wasn't kind of a once for all and this is how it should evermore be because that element comes later in, in Christ and the apostles. So, Mike, you make the distinction between taking the Bible seriously and taking it literally. Um, and uh, first, I guess, what's the difference between those? And then second, um, I think we've, we've probably got a lot of folks out there who assume that to take the Bible seriously means to take it literally. Uh, but yeah, you're, mean, making a, you're making that distinction. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a difference between taking the Bible literally and taking it seriously. So when uh, it says in, you know, in the Gospels, Jesus and his disciples came to Capernaum, I mean, I take that you know, literally. Jesus and his disciples, you know, walked into a town in the north of Galilee called Capernaum. But you know, Jesus can say things like, you know, I am the door. You know, I, I don't think you can take that literally, except in the most um, crass, unrealistic way. Uh, yeah, we, we need to read at the literary level and the literal level. Okay, but the the the, the literal and the literary are not always the same thing. And this is going to be very important when you're reading anything that is symbolic and poetic, and certainly when you also get into some of the more, uh, as we could call them, um, apocalyptic sections. Now, when I say apocalyptic, imagine me doing like the inverted commas thing with my finger, since that's a term that needs to be described. But you have to remember that, that God communicates to us in ideas and concepts that we can understand, and often these transcend culture. Or let's say looking at the book of Revelation, you know, where you've got a lot of strange, peculiar imagery. Um, you know, if you if you take this in a, in a literal sense, it can be problematic, particularly when John tells us that certain things, like the two witnesses, are meant to be taken symbolically or figuratively as we're told. Or even when you get into Galatians 4, when Paul says about the two covenants, the two mountains, the two women, he says these things can be taken allegorically. If you're operating with a purely nothing but strictly literal, you're going to find a few problems of interpretation from Genesis to Revelation. Michael, last question for you that I think is going to be really helpful for those, especially who've grown up in the church and are familiar with the scriptures, but maybe that familiarity prevents them from understanding its depth. You said readers of the Bible must defamiliarize themselves with it in order to understand it. What do you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, we develop our own traditions or our assumptions about what the Bible means uh, and how it works out in practice. Um, now, and, and, that, and that's at one level, I guess that's good because it means, you know, the Bible is regularly part of your life. But we've also got to remember that the Bible is there to challenge us in our assumptions and to make us feel a little bit uncomfortable. So just assuming that this part applies uh, in the way that we think it always does uh, may not always be helpful. We've got to be willing to listen to the experience of other people who have lived in other contexts and, and, and see how the Bible is familiar to them in a way that it's, it's not familiar to us. So, I mean, and let, me, let me give you an example. Uh, it's one thing to read Romans 13, you know, that passage is about, you know, obey the government uh, in, in, all, in all things and give respect and taxes. So if you're a Christian living, I don't know, in, in, in California or Indiana or maybe South Carolina, you, you can see how th that text would be familiar with you and make sense. But imagine if you're a Christian somewhere like Iran or if you're a Christian somewhere like China. 
okay, uh, that the text takes on a, a, a different a different kind of meaning or presents different challenges to you. And I guess what we need to make sure is we, we can't assume the way we relate to Romans 13, you know, in our Western liberal democracy context in a, in a fairly Christianized environment is going to be the same for everyone else, whether they're in Africa, um, South America, or in certain parts of the Middle East and Asia. And sometimes making the Bible weird, realizing how different it is from our own world, can certainly give us, you know, new insights into uh, uh, into how it can apply. I mean, to use the example of Romans 13, again, we often read it like, oh, you know, obviously this is just a text that's about, you know, Christians should obey government and, and you know, give honor and respect and follow all the COVID guidelines, that type of thing. But you know, if you remember that Paul is writing to a, about a pagan government, a Roman government, that's part of this, you know, monstrous machine of war and puts God's people into slavery and to the sword. And you notice that Paul frequently mentions Rome as the servant of God. That there's a little bit, there's a little bit of pushback. Okay, fine. Rome is an authority given by God, but only because it's a servant of God. And what you may miss out on in Romans 13 is Paul emphasizes that that Rome, its emperor, and all its greatness and majesty and 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 prestige, all of that is meant to kneel before the one God of Israel, the God of creations, the God who raised Jesus from the dead. So when, when you familiarize your text, you can begin to notice that different things can be emphasized, you know. So if you're in California, you think, yeah, it's right that I need to obey the government and follow the COVID guidelines. But if you're a Christian in China, you're taking solace from the fact that God is sovereign over the government that's here. And this government ultimately owes its allegiance to God. So defamiliarizing yourself with the text can can lead you to emphasize different things you may have not noticed before. That's, that's Michael, that's really a helpful phrase too, to defamiliarize yourself because I suspect that if we did that more often we would appreciate with greater depth how countercultural a lot of the, the biblical teaching was in the first century. Um, you know, so the teachings on sexuality for example and on marriage, you know, those I mean those were very countercultural. Um now, one, one other thing, and then we'll, we'll wrap up here. Uh, you talk about how the Bible finds its coherence in Christ. Can you explain, just explain really briefly what you mean by that? Because I think that's, yeah. if that's the thing to which everything points uh, and yeah. I think an appropriate place for us to end our conversation today. Yeah, and that's, that's exactly right. I mean, the New Testament overwhelmingly gives the impression, no, actually not the impression, the explicit teaching that Christ is the fulfillment and he's also the goal of the Old Testament. So we could talk about reading the Old Testament Christologically, or Peter Renz, I think, developed the excellent term. He said Christotelically. I mean, that's like, you know, Christ as the goal. And this is something that Jesus himself taught. Like in, I was reading, um, what was it, John, uh, John, I think it was John 5 with, um, my uh, son last night and where Jesus says to the Pharisees, you know, you study the scriptures because you think that, that through them you have life, but you will not come to me. You know, the one to whom the scriptures point or at the end of Luke's gospel, you know, you've got these uh, two, two somewhat mopey, uh, depressed um, dis uh, disciples on the road to Emmaus, 
you know, lamenting the fact that that they thought Jesus was the Messiah, but he got crucified. So they're thinking that they that they backed the wrong horse of the apocalypse, you know, and the whole thing is kind of um, fallen and failed. And they meet this sort of stranger on the way, and and he, he's a little bit perplexed. He doesn't know what they're sad about. He doesn't even know what's happened. And uh, and then he begins to talk to them, you know, about you know, and beginning with Moses and all the scriptures, you know, um, it's actually the risen Jesus explains to them thing, all the things concerning himself. And there's one particular text I get my students to memorize here at Ridley, and that's Acts 13, 33 to 34, where Paul is in a synagogue in Pisidian Antioch. And uh, he, he preaches to them. He says, what God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us their children, by raising Jesus from the dead. So the Old Testament can be read uh, Christologically. So when you read, you know, Psalm 110, we think of Jesus. Even when we read something like Psalm 23, you know, we can think of Jesus. Now, you might identify Jesus as, you know, the Lord is my shepherd, he's your shepherd. But we can also imagine Jesus as the one himself who prays that psalm, the one who has to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And he exemplifies faith in, in the God, his father, as, as he does that for our redemption to make atonement for our sins. Now, there is a danger of reading Christologically or Christocentrically. You can have this really cheesy temptation to Jesify everything. Okay, that's a good so term for it. You can do. Now, let me give give you an example. Like you know the story of David and Bathsheba. Now you can read that Christologically, and you can say, look, you know, David was a man who failed, but thankfully we have a new David. You know, a new Davidic king, you know, the Davidic king who was promised to come in Jesus. And that is good news because we have a new David who is a better king of a better kingdom. Now, that's all true and good. But when I'm reading the story of Bathsheba, I also want to be very explicit about what the text is concerned about, which is murder and sexual violence. Those things are very, very bad. So even as we read Christologically, we don't want to forget as well the other aspects of Scripture, like the ethical horizons. You know, we can learn you know, Old Testament, New Testament. There, there's a lot of the ethical stuff you can read as well. And also, you know, uh, a, a church-centered element. You know, the, a lot of the lessons for Israel also apply to the church today. And, you, I mean, you see New Testament authors doing that, you know, when they talk about, you know, how people— uh, Israel sinned in the wilderness, and they say, "Don't be like Israel in the wilderness." You know, don't go around mumbling and grumbling against God or, or that type of thing. So we really do need a Christological way of reading the Old Testament because Jesus teaches that, uh, Paul teaches that, and and the other apostles. But we've got to do that without this real clunky, awkward, strange Jesusifying of the Old Testament. So we don't forget and we don't enjoy and we don't benefit from the wider wisdom and message that it has for us. Thank you, Mike. That's that's very helpful. This, I mean, this whole discussion has been really insightful, uh, and we, we so appreciate uh, your time with us and uh, particularly for your book. And I want to c- commend your book again to our listeners, Michael Bird, uh, Seven Things I Wish Christians Knew About the Bible. So we we look we look forward to having our having our listeners get get exposed to that. It's just a, it's a wonderful introduction to the Bible, but it also enables people to dig dig a lot more deeply into some other areas uh, that may be of interest to them. So, Mike, thanks so much for being with us. Just d- delighted to have you on with us. 
Well, Sean and Scott, it's a pleasure to talk with you and a big hello to all of your listeners. This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. The Think Biblically podcast is brought to you by Talbot School of Theology at Biola University, offering programs in Southern California and online, including our new fully online bachelor's program in Bible theology and apologetics. Be sure and visit biola.edu slash Talbot in order to learn more. If you enjoyed today's conversation, give us a rating on your podcast app and be sure and share it with a friend. Thanks so much for listening and remember, think biblically about everything. Thank you.